future ain't what it used to be. This is hell, and that's a lesson from the great Sufic yogi named Bera that we keep learning and relearning again and again. Promises of a better, brighter, more peaceful, equal, free, and just world keep falling short, if not going completely unfulfilled. For instance, there was a time when we were told that with the help of technology, we would be able to conduct wars in a far more humane fashion. Drones would replace live pilots, taking them out of harm's way. Precision weaponry would usher in a future where only combatants would be targeted and civilian deaths could be reduced, minimized, or even avoided altogether. Working with the geniuses in Silicon Valley, the Pentagon could devise surveillance systems that could accurately identify the enemy, maybe even create robotic ground troops, which would do for the soldiers on the battlefield what drones were doing for pilots in the air. Not that anyone was thinking this would make war easier to launch and even more devastating against poorer countries with less military technology, which seems to be the outcome of all of this. In fact, we can see the outcome of this faith in technology to fight wars in the Hamas attack on October 7th. What that day has revealed to for all the world to see, if it's watching, is that such dependence on technology to solve all the world's crises is at best misguided and at worst, well, let's hope that right now is the worst it will get. But my guess, any hope for a more safe, secure, and peaceful world will likely also go unfulfilled. Our guest in a few minutes will be returning to This Is Hell, journalist, author, filmmaker, Washington editor of Harper's Magazine, Andrew Coburn, returns to discuss his March cover article at Harper's Magazine, The Pentagon's Silicon Valley Problem, How Big Tech is Losing the War of the Future. His most recent book is The Spoils of War, Power, Profit, and the American War Machine. Andrew was on the show most recently back in May of 2019 to talk about his then-just-posted Harper's article, No Joe, Joe Biden's Disastrous Legislative Legacy. We're seeing that play out here during his administration. He's the author of many articles and books on national security, including a couple of books that are going to come up during our conversation today, like uh, one of his books that won the New York Times editor's choice, Rumsfeld, the, his rise, fall and catastrophic legacy and the threat inside the Soviet military machine, which destroyed the myth of the Soviet military superiority underpinning the Cold War. Andrew is also the author of Kill Chain, Drones, and the Rise of High-Tech Assassins, which will also probably be touched on during this conversation as well. We discussed that with him when it was published in 2015. You can find our five most recent interviews with Andrew for free at our website, thisishell.com. 
He's a regular opinion contributor to the LA Times and has written for, among others, the New York Times, National Geographic, London Review of Books. He's also a film producer and writer, known for 1997's The Peacemaker with George Clooney and Nicole Kidman, the 2009 documentary American Casino, which we also discussed with Andrew when it was released way back in 2009, and we'll probably be sharing that interview in the very near future on Patreon as well. Check out Andrew's Substack at spoilsofwar.substack.com. Follow him on Twitter at Andrew Coburn. I am your bitter, blind, broke radio, <laughs> bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show, live streaming, podcast host Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Becca Reidenauer. Behind every great fortune lies a great crime because... This is hell, and the great fortune being made right now is by Silicon Valley and the military-industrial congressional complex. And they are literally, figuratively, and figuratively, making a killing selling the next new technology that will keep us all safe but ends up killing more civilians than military members, just like all the old dumb technology that has failed us and failed to live up to the war industry's promises. We are very happy to have back on the show Again, journalist, author, filmmaker, Washington editor of Harper's Magazine, Andrew Coburn, returns to discuss his March cover story at Harper's, the Pentagon Silicon Valley problem. Please support his Substack at spoilsofwar.substack.com and follow him on Twitter at Andrew M. Coburn. Andrew M. Coburn. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Andrew. Hey, it's so good to be with you. It's great to have you back on the show. It's been five years. I promise it's not going to be five years until the next conversation we oh, have. Good. <laughs> so uh, is, Israel was openly boasting about the wall that was protecting the Israeli public from Hamas. Uh, they were trying to sell it to other countries. Uh, they were even having potential clients uh, in the days leading up to uh, October 7th, According, uh, actually looking at the wall. They're showing it off to potential clients and customers. According to a digital rights scholar and writer Sophia Goodfriend, who posted the Baffler magazine article, Blunt Force Precision Warfare Does Not Exist, back in October of last year, three weeks after the Hamas attack. So Israel was proud of the system. Was there pride in fact that it did finally provide? Was there, uh, was there real pride in the fact that they believed it did finally provide security for Israel from Gaza? And do you think the wall in any way reflected part of their national identity or mythos? Yeah, in all sorts of ways. I mean, they certainly believed this. And when the wall, we're talking about a literal wall, you know, fences and barbed wire and, and a virtual wall of sensors and detection devices all linked to with the artificial intelligence to tell them they were convinced they knew absolutely everything that Hamas was doing and therefore they could predict you know they could predict the future that they could sit back and relax and they you know a huge part of is the Israeli economy is exporting all this kind of stuff including there's this similar kind of systems as we speak on our southern border um, from a company called Elbit. So, yeah, this was like they. This is their great source of national pride. <laughs> you know, the, the, if you want to call it that, prison technology. Um, but particularly, as I stress in the in the article with me, you, you were mentioning, the whole belief that AI, that artificial intelligence, could was intelligence and would tell them what was going to happen. And we know what did happen. 
Then you mentioned the real intelligence, though, outside of artificial intelligence. You write that Israelis living close to the border observed and publicized uh, exercises that Hamas was taking with mounting alarm, but were ignored in favor of intelligence bureaucracies, analyses, and by extension, the software that had informed them. Israeli conscripts, mostly young women, monitoring developments through the ubiquitous surveillance cameras along the Gaza border, composed and presented a detailed report on Hamas's preparations to breach the fence and take hostages, only to have their findings dismissed as an imaginary, uh, an imaginary scenario. Why would they implement all of this technology and have so much faith in it, only to dismiss, to dismiss the operators who were using the surveillance equipment themselves? Was it overconfidence in the system, or do you think it was more disrespect for Hamas? Uh, well, it's a combination of things. Um, you know what you what you just said: overconfidence in the system, disrespect for Hamas, uh, sexism. I think. I mean, some of those women who you know spotted what was going on and complained. They've said since, well, if if it had been men, you know, putting in these reports, it might have got a different reaction. But I mean, what kills me is that not only were you know Hamas you know, practicing what they were going to do in plain sight of these observers, they were even putting it on their on their websites. You know, if you went online, there was Hamas videos. I mean, you know, if we'd known to go online, uh, there were Hamas videos uh, showing them practicing breaching the wall, practicing them rounding up hostages, practicing, you know, assaulting settlements, assaulting, you know, practicing everything they did, which they put up online for anyone to watch. Um, which somehow wasn't noticed or analyzed or accounted for by the, you know, the wonders of high-tech Israeli intelligence. Israel thought that they had outsmarted uh, Hamas with AI. Was Hamas betting on Israeli overconfidence and their racially based underestimation of them? Has Israeli racism toward Palestinians proven to be a security vulnerability? I think clearly so. Um, you know that, that there was this inbuilt, there is this inbuilt belief that, you know, the, the you know was one particularly discussed, you know, famous remark now by a Israeli cabinet minister that they're dealing with human animals, and if you're dealing with you know animals, you tend to take them less seriously. Um, so I think there's a, there was a lot of that built in. Oh, you know, oh they'll never do it. Oh, you know, the Palestinians are so disorganized. Oh, we know everything, and it's you know this fatal trust fatal for the israelis trust in in that in their own technology and in the wonders of technology which they as i said they have a stake in advertising because that's one of their principal exports this is what led them to this disaster so is ai easily duped well it dupes itself you know i talk a lot in the piece or in the piece you know it um it's an intractable pro intractable apparently intractable problem with AI, they call it hallucinations, in that AI um, tends to make things up. Um, I'll give an example of the end of the article where, just out of interest, I asked AI a question, you know, some research topic I was pursuing, whether, um, you know, whether a particular American company, Palantir, was providing Israeli, Israel with its AI platform. And it sent me back a beautifully composed press release um, <laughs> saying just that, a press release from, from the American company, complete with quotes from the CEO of the company and from the Israeli chief of staff. It was perfect. 
except it was all made up. It didn't, the, the, the AI system itself had made it up because it figured that's what I wanted to see, I guess. So uh, what does AI mean for the, fu- the present and the future of fake news? Uh, well, it means fake news is now very hyper-powered. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, we do, you know, we do pretty well on fake news even without AI, but this, now we don't even have to bother to make things up. AI will do it for us. And this is going to be, uh, here that, uh, you know, your, your own trusty voice or, you know, someone you can trust, um, you know, something, there'll have to be a way of verifying that what you're hearing and what you're getting is not AI. But the trouble is that there's perceived to be so much money in it. You know, this is corporations are slabbering at the thought they'll be able to fire, you know, most of their workforce because they'll get AI to do it all. Um, the defense complex, as I say in the article, they've long, they've been dreaming, dreaming of, of AI for for decades, you know, that somehow that everything can be managed by a giant brain and that'll tell them all the things they need to know versus for example, such as what they spend their money on, because they literally don't know. You know, for six years in a row now, the Pentagon has failed to pass an audit. Actually, I mean, it's been longer than that, but Congress started getting antsy about it six years ago. And so they're by law, they're meant to pass an audit, which they still fail to do. So then they, they've installed an AI program called Game Changer, which is meant to tell them you know, where the money goes. <laughs> But it still failed. It still failed. So it's, uh, and the AI couldn't even spell its own press release on that one. So, um, you know, it's it's really, you know, I, I, we can talk about AI across the whole spectrum of, you know, everyday life, the impact it may or may not have. But I, I'm thinking particularly about the military and how AI, which I regard as certainly in this context as mostly hype, you know, is being used to extract yet more billions of dollars from your pocket and mine. Is this uh, de- dependence or welcoming of AI? Is this a reflection of what you've written about before in your book on Donald Rumsfeld, the shortcomings of the privatization of and the greater dependence on the private sector when it comes to decisions based on defense in the military? Is this the privatization, the outcome of the privatization of defense, which is what Rumsfeld and so many others, Cheney, Baker, the Clintons, the Bushes, Kissinger, Reagan, even Carter, in that whole bipartisan neoliberal, neoconservative wing of both parties wanted. Is this what they wanted and this is what they got? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it really took off under Clinton. Um, and it's been going, you know, helter skelter since then. And now with this growing embrace of, uh, of Silicon Valley or, you know, this unholy fusion really of Silicon Valley with the with the Pentagon. I mean I do point out and we should recognize that Silicon Valley was originally the creation of the of the military of the of the Pentagon. I mean it was the Pentagon really funded the creation of the internet, funded the creation of the semiconductor, you know, silicon uh, silicon chip. So everything that makes, you know, our present digital life possible really comes out of the defense dollar. Uh, but there was, then there was a period in the you know in the 70s 80s and even 90s when uh you know it looked like there was an alternate path that silicon valley and there was a conscious rejection of working for the war the death machine um you know the people uh this was you know the personal computer was going to liberate us from the state 
Um, it was kind of a, a fanciful idea, but it was a nice one. Um, and, you know, lots of people working in, in, in the industry in Silicon Valley, you know, figured that they were, you know, didn't want anything to do with the military industrial complex. And, you know, they were working on something more benign and you know, beneficial to uh, humanity. And that, you know, lingered on for quite a while. I talk about in the article how um, just a few years ago when it was revealed that Google had been secretly working on a huge defense contract, um, there was a, a revolt in the workforce and thousand, four, four or five, uh, about 4,000 Google employees signed a petition rejecting this and some people were even quit. Um, so Google said, oh, okay. Right. Sorry. No, we won't do it. Okay. We, you know, sorry about that. Uh, we reject war work, but actually that was a lie because they soon, uh, soon returned to it and are now, you know, eagerly bidding for defense contracts, just like the other big tech firms. Are we being led to believe that this quote unquote new relationship between big tech and the military, which as you point out is not new, will solve all of our problems with the military when it comes to its budget, the money it costs, any weapons that perform poorly, any technological reasons for even uh, having wars, that our weaponry will be undefeatable. And is this promise an old promise that continues to go unfulfilled and continues to take in more and more money? Is this just how tech has worked in the United States uh, since the Pentagon created Silicon Valley? That this is the, we'll keep making you all these promises that everybody's going to be safe, everybody's going to be secure, no civilians will be killed, and then that promise continues to go unfulfilled. Because why would we continue to fall for that promise? Um, well, as a huge, you know, machine, a PR machine at work selling us all this. I mean, uh, I really fault the press on this. Um, the, you know, the media, <clears throat> the mainstream or legacy media, whatever you want to call it, you know, is all, there are such suckers for all the, for all the PR nonsense that's pumped out both by the Pentagon and by, you know, now from Silicon Valley. Part of the pitch these days is that, oh, well, you know, got fuddy-duddy old defense contracting system, you know, the Lockheeds and Boeings of this world, and they're so slow and bureaucratic, and the Pentagon's so bureaucratic. What we need are the eager, bright-eyed, fast-moving, fast-paced uh, young entrepreneurs from Silicon Valley who uh, bring fresh, innovative approaches and will solve all the problems, which they won't, and they haven't. Um, in fact, the way they talk is, you know, is enough to make a even the sort of, you know, the worst kind of threat inflator in the Pentagon blush. I mean, it's, a, um, you know, like, a, and there's a company called Anderil, which is founded by a guy called uh, Palmer Lucky, who always wears uh, 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 Hawaiian shirts and shorts to show how innovative and, you know, unconventional and uh, <clears throat> kind of plastic he is. But he comes out with the same nonsense that you're hearing from the Pentagon for forever, you know, that somehow technology is going to solve it. Okay, we got a problem, uh, you know, like, you know, soldiers can't. Uh, now, I mean, Lucky, for instance, he, I, I quote him in the piece talking about you're going to have us, going to have, thanks to technology, we'll have soldiers who can know everything that's going on around them, know exactly where the guy over the hill or hiding behind the tree is, um, you know, you have some of these sort of superhero soldiers. I mean, it's all this um, sci-fi BS, you know, which is um, 
which is a variation on you know what we've been hearing for years and years from the Pentagon, which has you know always has two themes. One is, oh, the enemy, you know, we've got to watch out. The enemy is becoming bigger and badder. You know, the Chinese, the Russians, um, you know, becoming more and more dangerous. And the other is, but our, only our technology can save us, and our technology can do this. So what, that's what Silicon Valley is now amping that second part up. Actually, both parts. You just said science fiction movies, and I, I couldn't uh, help but think about the Marvel movies and how so often I hear them mentioned when there are stories about AI or new technology when it comes to war making. They're always saying there's going to be an Iron Man-like suit. And yeah. you point out in your article about how they've actually tried this and that the AI was easily duped. All the uh, soldiers had to do was put a cardboard box over their head or hold a branch in front of them, and the AI couldn't recognize the person as a soldier. How do we understand Silicon Valley differently? What effect do you think it has on our relationship with even accepting new technologies? Once we do become aware and recognize that big tech and all the high-tech gizmos they give us are all deeply not only embedded in our military-industrial-police surveillance complex, but often fail. Silicon Valley really brings to the table is this is the brand, you know, being, you know, of, you know, have, having delivered, you know, we're talking, you know, we're talking on Zoom. I mean, it's... Um, that's you know amazing creation and the and you know the laptop I'm talking through um, and whatever you're using you know that's all great so we think we've now you know technology now has become even more than ever you know something wonderful in people's minds so when when that same entity that same industry says oh and now we can solve all the problems of defense you know which you know most people have an idea it hasn't been going so well you know we've been losing wars and everyone knows they waste a huge amount of money and you know if they pay even a little bit of attention they can see that you know very vastly expensive weapons don't work like you know the f-35 fighter and things like that hey but now the people who brought us the laptop and the zoom and you know whatever else uh, are coming along and they're going to solve all that well that you know, that has credibility in people's minds. I think that's a very important aspect of it. And it's, you know, just don't, don't believe it. Um, you know, I think it's, um, it's what's really depressing about this, this uh, process is that it shows us, it tells me anyway, that the great days of innovation, of tech innovation that we were getting from Silicon Valley, and all the wonderful things that we use, you know, smartphones and so forth, that's all kind of come to an end. They kind of run out of ideas. And so what they're do, what's happening is they, that, you know, they're turning to Uncle Sam. You know, if, you, if you're thinking maybe commercially you're not going to be doing so well in the future, well, there's one surefire steady source of money and profit, and that's the taxpayer. And that's, what's, and that's what's going on, I think. That's why, you know, this union is becoming tighter. Why is there that lack of innovation that you were just talking about? Is it due to... Maybe is there too little competition? I think that's a lot to do with it. I mean, you've now basically, you've got these, you know, really the whole thing, industry is dominated by these titanic firms, you know, um, Google and Amazon and uh, Microsoft um, and a few others. Um, so there's, you know, I think it's sort of, that. that's what tends to happen in industries when you get a, well, it's not a total monopoly, and it's a, I guess it's an oligopoly, we can call it, 
Um, you know, and I've, I've talked to people, I talked to a lot of people when I was doing this article who said, oh, you know, people, there are still people doing sort of entrepreneurial things, but they're saying, oh, God, it's really, you know, there's so much less innovation and, you know, it's getting so much harder to find engineers uh, who, you know, come up with innovative ideas. Um, I've talked to, you know, uh, venture capital people who say, God, we haven't been able to do a deal in 18 months. There's, you know, can't find anything worthwhile to put our money into. Um, and that, that quote, that's a quote from someone who wasn't going to put his money into defense. And I've noticed that, um, you know, there's a huge amount of venture capital money going into defense contracts, into defense firms, startup defense firms. Uh, there's an article today in the Wall Street Journal about how venture capital firms are investing in um, hypersonic you know, startups that are going to develop hypersonic weapons, which is a joke. You know, people have been trying to develop hypersonic weapons for actually for you know well over half a century <laughs> and have gotten really gotten nowhere. Um, there's all sorts of intractable problems. And the idea that, you know, the people working out of the proverbial garage or something close to it in Silicon Valley are going to be able to solve these very basic problems of physics is kind of laughable. But they're getting investment. So, hey, maybe they're not so dumb. Yeah, and there's these uh, stories that uh, Russia is uh, used a hypersonic missile on Ukraine. However, that's completely unconfirmed. And when I saw that in the paper, I was like, "Boy, this sure does look like it's an ad for investing in hypersonic missiles." You mentioned exactly. You mentioned an acolyte of Andrew Marshall, the venerated former director of the Office of Net Assessment and internal Pentagon think tank. One of them embedded in Washington's defense archipelago was a former Marine named Robert O. Work. Uh, appointed under Obama as Undersecretary of the Navy in 2009 and rapidly promoted, Work was an ardent advocate of the notion that the United States was losing its technological lead, previously assured by its superiority in nuclear weapons and then by its precision-guided weapons. Now the Chinese and Russians, he warned dark darkly, had caught up endangering America's military dominance. Now, you wrote about this back in the 80s. Was there any evidence to suggest this was the case? After all, the Pentagon has a long history of exaggerating threats dating back to the Cold War when their assessments of the Soviet uh, Union's military, their capability was far, they, as their assessment was that it was far greater than any reality. So is there any evidence that there is a tech gap between the United States, China, and the Russians? No. Um, no, not at all. I mean, I, you know, for for Russia in the for the Soviet, what I read about the Soviets in the eighties. I mean, you could apply to the Chinese now. I don't know if the Chinese are quite as dysfunctional as the Soviets were uh, back then, but they. Uh, I haven't. I haven't seen much evidence that they're you know particularly deserve the the hype they're getting here. I would say now at the moment Russia probably does have some sort of edge only because they've had, you know, now had two years of intense combat experience in, uh, in, for, for, in what for them is, you know, a real uh, almost life or death struggle in Ukraine. So they looks like from what I hear and people tell me and what I read, uh, you know, the, there are things that, that they've, uh, they've, they've got some, you know, insights and developed some systems that probably do have an edge on us in some ways, but, um, Basically, you know, nothing's changed. The military, 
the military really, you have to understand the defense system here and in most places exists to feed itself. You know, it exists to get, you know, subjective is not defense, really, it's money. And so that it will adjust, you know, the facts and what it tells us and the way it looks at the world in order to suit that. Um, so, you know, now what it suits them to say is, oh, the Russians and Chinese are way ahead in hypersonic weapons. So therefore we must pump billions into hypersonic weapons here without looking at, you know, whether this thing can ever work or not, which I think it probably can't. You quote a combat veteran now with a Pentagon agency working on issues like AI saying, I don't know if AI or the sensors that feed it for that matter will ever be capable of spontaneity or recognizing spontaneity. You report that he then cited a DARPA experiment in which a squad of Marines, as I was discussing earlier or mentioning earlier, uh, defeated an AI governed robot that had been trained to detect them simply by altering their physical profiles. Two walked inside a large cardboard box. Others somersaulted. One wore the brand of a fir tree, all were able to approach over open ground and touch the robot without detection. Despite these failures, must the U.S. continue pursuing this technology because others are doing so? Do we have to keep up with the Joneses or are the Joneses not as interested in weaponizing AI as we're telling people? Well, I think they probably are. I'm sure there's an AI lobby in China. In fact, I know there is. Um, and they, you know, they quote what we say about you know, the wonders of AI and they, uh, you know, so the two systems sort of feed off each other. Um, and I'm, I'm sure in Russia too. The, um, yeah, I love that story about the Marines um, <laughs> with the cardboard box and so forth. It really sums so much up. There's another point that's worth that, that, that these, you know, brilliant geniuses in Silicon Valley never talk about or maybe don't even understand, which is, you know, it's all very well having you know, super incredible, high com computational brilliance or AI, whatever, you know, making sense of the battlefield. But it's got to be able to see it. And they never think about, and this is people I talk to, including the person you just quoted, they say, well, you know, it's the sensors. We don't, you know, there's a lot of talk about like autonomous drones that you can send out and say, find me a Russian tank and destroy it. Well, the drone has to be able to recognize the Russian tank and it'll have in its memory or in the whatever's controlling the, the, in its so-called library, you know, pictures of Russian tanks, you know, hundreds of pictures of Russian tanks. But there's a Russian tank or any tank or any vehicle can look, there's an almost an in, infinite number of varieties of ways it can appear, like, you know, what kind of time of day it is, what kind of light, what it's, you know, is it shaded by a tree? Is it, you know, there's no... So most of the time, unless it's like sitting on a sort of blank, you know, white background, you know, looking like a sort of, you know, with a clean silhouette, you know, it's not going to be able to recognize it or is going to blow up your car on the way to work thinking it's a tank. You know, it's, it's these practical realities that these dumbos in Silicon Valley don't understand because, you know, none of them, at least in the Pentagon, you've got a few people who've actually been in combat or you know, combat situations and have a vague idea what can what can really happen and the real difficulties you face. And you get these, you know, people out in Silicon Valley like me, Mr. Lucky in his you know, Hawaiian shirt and shorts, who have really no idea of what the re of the reality of war, which is, you know, makes it even more absurd that they're telling the rest of us what to do. 
just a couple more questions for you, Andrew. If this, if the weaponization of AI by Silicon Valley was done with such secrecy, trying to avoid oversight, because if it came to a vote, everyone would likely vote against the Pentagon working with Silicon Valley to weaponize AI. To what extent do we know the state of that partnership on this project today? Um, we certainly don't. There's a lot we don't know. Um, you know that we keep occasionally. We you know secret projects suddenly pop up, like it was something called Project Maven. I write about in the piece, which they've been working on for ages, um, and then suddenly it was revealed. That's what caused uh, the Google revolt. Um, so there's a whole lot going on, and I think um, you know there's we have less and less oversight of the whole defense enterprise, um, partly because the once upon a time he used to have quite efficient um, or vaguely efficient sort of committee, you know, congressional committees with had investigators who look, you know, prepared to really dig in and, you know, find out things and, you know, call, call them out. Now that doesn't really exist anymore. Now the congressional committees are just, you know, <clears throat> just part of the choir. They just um, uh, don't do anything. They, um, there's, there's the opposition, both <coughs> not the opposition, but informed criticism, both inside the government and outside um, in the press, is really sunk to shockingly low, sunk to shockingly low levels. It's a big problem. Did AI, did new tech, not only fail to protect Israel? And is it also now failing to protect Gaza's civilians and in, in that uh, they're supposed to be using smart precision technology? How much can we blame AI for not only what happened on October 7th, but what is happening in Gaza right now? Well, there's been a very credible um, Israeli press report that they have to pick targets in Gaza. They have a, an AI program called Gospel, um, which says, you know, has you know, all sorts of huge database, like all these AI things uh, that'll say, oh, that, you know, that uh, house on the corner of that street, um, uh, a guy who was once seen talking to a Hamas person once went in there. So that's a Hamas place. So blow it up. So what that means is, you know, you can tie everything into that. So in, in practice, what's meant to be a what's billed as a precision ai precision targeting selection system that's going to tell you who really needs to be hit it actually it means that every everything needs to be hit so they might as well be like in world war ii just well they are just you know leveling the city and killing everyone in it which is what's been going on so as you know our final question for each and every one of our guests is the question from hell the question we hate to ask you may hate to answer our audience is going to hate your response we've been speaking with andrew coburn who has the new cover story at harper's magazine titled the pentagon's silicon valley problem so our question from hell for you andrew is is what we are seeing big tech corporate capture of the government or big government capture of the private sector. What happens when big tech becomes big government and public sector big government is the private sector of big tech? What happens when these two become so embedded together? I say watch out because they don't have your interests or mine at heart. I mean, it's an unholy fusion of people who basically want to control us just for the sake of making even more money for themselves. It's a very dangerous development. 
and we should really be on the alert because this is things are <laughs> things are heading if we're not into hell already we're heading there so support uh andrew substack at substack or spoils of war dot substack dot com do you have a new book coming out uh not yet i'm working on one all right well tell me when it comes out or whenever you want to be back on the show you know i, I always have an open invitation to you and your brothers i love you guys i really appreciate all the support you've shown for our show since the 20th century so thank you so much and uh, take care and enjoy the uh joy 2024 okay you too all thank right. you chuck take care bye-bye you are listening to god's favorite radio show prove me wrong this is hell if you enjoyed our conversation with andrew coburn that is you enjoyed it because you learned something from our talk show your appreciation by becoming a subscriber to our bonus patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell or you can show your support for completely listener listener supported this is hell by visiting this is hell.com and clicking on support i am your bitter blind broke gap tooth radio show live streaming podcast host chuck mertz producing is becca ridenauer becca anything new in your world oh just the 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 weather <laughs> everybody's stymied by the weather <laughs> yeah. i mean it was like a summer day yesterday and now there's snow on the ground and ice 71 down to 23. We almost dropped 50 degrees in less than 12 hours. It was the craziest thing in the world. And I was, and they kept changing the forecast and changing the forecast and office hours is tonight. And I was like, so it's going to be 71 the day before office hours and the high the next day is going to be 25. Luckily, it's now going to be a balmy 33 according to forecast. So I guess I got that going for me. Over the weekend, my uh, longtime non-wife and I visited her family who would be my in-laws if there was anything legally binding about our relationship. Although back in 2022, when I was on my deathbed, she did get the power of attorney over me so she could legally pull the plug was also the moment that I realized my healthcare team was not as forthcoming about my medical condition as I had imagined. So my would-be in-laws in central Illinois, that's where they live. They're in the breadbasket, the agricultural center, what is known as the heart of Illinois. And there's nothing quite like the boring flat landscape, especially the monotonous hundred-mile stretch between the appropriately named cities of Plainfield and Normal. If you're looking for a complete lack of variation and excitement in your life, you need look no further than driving from Plainfield to normal. The only thing breaking up the tedious journey through gigantic agriculture operations is wind farms and towering flare stacks that burn off natural gas for whatever reason they burn off natural gas. I have no idea. I thought that that would be valuable. With spring not yet sprung, the agricultural farms are still barren and there's nothing everywhere. It's like a really dull hell. Whatever nearby small towns might exist are too far from the highway, so you're left wondering what life is like in what appears from the road to be a tiring nowhere. It all seemed so American, with expressways carrying people to who knows where, and we certainly didn't because the expressways are far from where people live in rural America. We knew nothing about what was around us, that is, until we were confronted by something too American and awful that had happened several hours earlier on the expressway we were traveling. Two drivers in the northbound lanes apparently got into some sort of road rage incident. The incident quickly escalated. Being Americans, the drivers in both cars were armed with loaded guns. 
One driver started shooting at the other car. The other driver returned fire. They eventually pulled over to settle things right there on the shoulder of the highway. Both men emerged from their cars, guns blazing. The Illinois State Police responded quickly. When a patrol car arrived, a state trooper got out of his car with his gun also drawn. And one of the two shooters reportedly turned and pointed his gun at the cop. They exchanged fire. The officer shot one of the two shooters several times, killing him. Due to the shooting and follow-up investigation and the police-involved death, they closed off the northbound lanes where the shooting occurred, but we were driving south. However, we did see the resulting five, maybe ten-mile traffic jam of cars just sitting still on 55. And all I could think was, where are these people going? Or the people who are sitting in their car waiting to go, waiting for the cops to let them let the traffic through, which one of them is both susceptible to road rage as well as has a gun. Turns out the shooting victim was a 37-year-old man from Springfield, Illinois, the state capital. There's an ongoing investigation, and once I learned what happened, I missed the dull hell that's in the heart of Illinois. Becca, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? And tell us how our listeners are responding at the Welcome to the Hell Hole Facebook group page. All right. This week's question from hell was suggested by listener Rick P. in our Welcome to the Hell Hole Facebook group page, which is, why do birds suddenly appear every time you are near? And our I do love that song, I, by the way. Uh, me too. <laughs> I'm a sucker for the carpenters. <laughs> we have some different varying opinions here. Uh, so Austin... S says, it's because of the carry-on in my pockets, isn't it? And Dan K says, and this bird you cannot change. Martin F says, they need cars to poop on. Okay. (laughs) Sparrow A says, carpenters are spooky AF. I love it. (laughs) David G says, I'm under surveillance. Hashtag birds aren't real. (laughs) Um, Mike uh, S says, because I've replaced all my dating apps with carrier and pigeons. Uh, SPW says, I am the bird man, cuckoo-cachoo. <laughs> what was the question from hell again? <laughs> uh, oh. wh- oh, why do, do birds, birds suddenly, suddenly appear, appear every time, time you are near? Okay. Uh, and uh, Walzjek? I'm so... Yeah, that's good. Enough. Okay. <laughs> I'm trapped in a Hitchcock movie, and that got a lot of love. Okay. Uh, Ronaldo says, because they know I'm carrying peanuts and breadcrumbs. <laughs> and I think he is. Uh, <laughs> Julie M says, oh, those birds are taking that avian, avian college course titled Humans 201, Slow and Stupid, Masters of Their Own Destruction, Observation, and Reportage. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. And our, our Jeffrey Dorchin says, because I'm waking up hungover in, chicken, in a chicken coop. Aaron D says, because I'm such a pecker. Sarah H says, because you're actually dead and it's lunchtime. No. Jen D says, just like me, they're long to be free of capitalism. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> uh, Nick E says, condors and vultures can smell death miles away. <laughs> uh, Nick E says, condors, oh, sorry. Uh, M, uh, Micah D says, because I rocked down Electric Avenue. Mm. Right. And Wendy S says, it's a, it's a game of target practice. How many tacos can they drop on each human? Gross. <laughs> And David R. says, just like me, they long to eat carrion food. John C. says, it's my cologne, abracadaver. <laughs> Gross. And Cherry B. says, burbs. 
uh, which has a whole Reddit thread I just saw, found. Uh, Jack B says, I smell of death, they're vultures. And Neil C says, because it must be my worm personality, which gets my applause. <laughs> so the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell wins their choice of whatever This Is Hell sw- swag that they want. You can check out all of our merch right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer at our Facebook page or message it to us via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Or you can leave it at our Facebook group page, uh, Welcome to the Hellhole. And if you are not a member, you should join. Or you can tweet us, tweet it at us via X at This Is Hell Radio, or you can post it in our Discord community, or you can leave it your answer at our Patreon page if you are a subscriber at patreon.com slash thisishell. Patreon patrons, in fact, get first crack at the question from hell every week as we share it during the weekly exclusive Patreon podcast, which this week goes live on Friday morning at 10 a.m. Central Standard Time here in Chicago. By the way, next week we go back to our regular Monday through Wednesday schedule with Patreon happening on Thursdays. In fact, Yesterday's guest who had to reschedule at the very last minute, Palestinian writer at Declassified UK and contributor to Jacobin, Hamza Ali Shah, has confirmed that he will be on the show next Monday to talk about his recent writing on Gaza, specifically Western complicity in the mass killing of Palestinians, including our complicit media. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we can be a regular part of your weekly hangover, this is hell, and Rebecca has this week's hangover cure. All right, this week's hangover cure is the Taiwanese delicacy, and I'm going to butcher this, Ti Huo Ko. I like that. That's okay. Good. <laughs> Which translates in English to pig's blood cake. Oh, it sounds much better. Yum. A couple weeks ago, the Daily Mail posted this article, travel writers and chefs reveal their favorite hangover foods from around the world, from the decadent to the bizarre. Which would you try? The article cites travel author and founder of Taiwan-obsessed Nick Campbell, who the story states is evangelical about Taiwanese street food's ability to slough off a rough head. (laughs) He told Mail Online Travel, a a must-try is Taiwan's pig's blood cake, a symbolic street food that uh, that is sold fresh all morning. Its deep crimson color may turn some off, but iron-rich pig's blood works wonders, reinvigorating hungover systems to one hearty slice. Uh, the male explains pig's blood cake is made by mixing pig's blood with steaming sticky rice to create a chewy, semi-gelatinous texture, <laughs> which is then rolled in peanut dust and spices and served on a stick. Nick said, it may sound scary, but it tastes like a cure. And that makes this week's hangover cure pig's blood cake, which at least tastes like a cure. <laughs> I have no idea if it works or not, but it sounds it's kind of good. I'm kind of interested I'm too. I'm sure it's good. I'm sure it yeah. is too. I love duck blood soup. Mm-hmm. I love kishka. So that's blood sausage. Yeah, so. That's- that's my, my heritage there. Some good blood pudding. Uh, yes. <laughs> so on our most recent Patreon podcast, we mentioned how back on Noam Chomsky's 90th birthday, December 7th, 2018, writer Nick Pemberton posted a Counterpunch article titled The Case for Chuck Mertz, Not Noam Chomsky as America's Leading Intellectual. Shortly after we 
uh, shortly after that was posted online, I did a monologue here on the show where I argued that Nick was clearly being sarcastic and kind of mean, not only to Noam Chomsky, but to me. What I did not know until only recently is Nick had posted another article seven months later on July 19th, 2019, which was the first day we aired a live show from our new studio, from the place where I'm sitting right now here above Carrie's Lounge. That second article by Nick was headlined, This is Heaven, A Journey to the Pearly Gates with Chuck Mertz. In that article, Nick recalls a dream where I am some sort of divine being. See, I told you he was being sarcastic. And I give Nick a tour of heaven, a tour that includes run-ins with Jesus Christ, Ralph Nader, Santa Claus, and Dumbledore from the Harry Potter books and movies. Also on Patreon, recently during Seb Vupper's Past Inside the Present, series on Zionism, I was reminded of our conversations we had done with the late, great Yuri of Neri, former Israeli soldier, Knesset member, and leading Israeli peace activist who spoke with us a couple of times live from Israel. Yuri fought in the 1948 Arab-Israeli war with the Irgun paramilitary group alongside former Israeli general and prime minister Ariel Sharon. Also included in that group would be another future prime minister. Menachem Begin and Benjamin Netanyahu was also linked to it. Yuri boldly stated in our conversations that the group he participated in, Irgun, again, which had so many future generals in the IDF and so many future prime ministers in the Israeli government, Yuri said it was a terrorist group. We'll be talking about that more tomorrow when we have Rick Perlstein on the show. Yuri actually served twice in the Knesset from 65 to 73 and 77 to 81. He then left the government and formed Israel's peace movement, Gush Shalom. Yuri passed away a few months before Nick claimed I was the most important public intellectual, so he never realized what an honor it was for him to be interviewed by me. But the only way you can, I'm being sarcastic as Nick is, but the only way you can hear me interpret Nick's dream and a 20-year-old talk with an admitted terrorist who fought for Israel and then became one of the country's leading peace activists is by subscribing at patreon.com slash this is hell. Coming up, Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth. I forgot to ask you, what is Jeff talking about on this week's moment of truth? That's a great question. Jeff expresses an unpopular opinion. Well, (laughs) now we've nailed him down. (laughs) At least he didn't make a general statement. (laughs) So coming up, Jeff Dorch in the moment of truth, we will tell you who our final guest of the week will be. And we'll um, tell you some other stuff. (laughs) Keep in mind, a lot of the questions I was, uh, a lot of the questions I asked were written while was very, very high, but I'm not right now, even though it might sound like it. This is hell, and Becca, I know you have Hefe on the line. One, two, you know what to do, Hefe. One more time. It's not a matinee. I have what might prove to be an unpopular opinion on the Israel-Palestine conflict, a conflict which currently is all about the genocidal or at best ethno-supremacist bombardment of Gaza. In a view most flattering to Israel, it's termed by some a war. 
Bear in mind that I consider the current action by Israel in Gaza, and now the West Bank, to be genocide in progress, and anything I opine below must not be misunderstood to mitigate that conclusion. This should not be interpreted as a rebuttal to active-duty U.S. Airman Aaron Bushnell's powerful statement of protest against U.S. complicity in the genocide in Gaza. Okay? Got it? Because... You're going to think otherwise, and you're going to come back at me with irrelevant attack questions, and you'll be wrong. My opinion comes from five decades of trying to understand the history and facts I've been able to gather. It is as follows. There are two oppressed peoples who, for around 75 years and change, have been fighting over the same piece of land that they had previously coexisted on for centuries. One group, now called Israel, has the upper hand thanks to imperialist powers that have at various times in their history scapegoated Jews and wanted them dead, suppressed, or out of their territories. Beginning in the late 19th century, those imperial powers have used Jewish-slash-Zionist aspirations for a state, a state that was stolen from us by the Romans, for their own ends. Atheists! With your moronic, shallow, one-dimensional understanding of the conflict, take note that theft of Judean Israelite statehood is an historical fact, not a religious one. It is not a supernatural belief. It is recorded by historians of the time and verified by modern historians. It is backed up by archaeology, linguistics, and genetics. Zionism began as an entirely secular movement, and the conflict it provoked, however muddied with religious chauvinism it's become, retains its predominantly geopolitical character. And to everyone, not just stupid atheists, it doesn't matter how long ago the expulsion happened. There's no statute of limitations on forced exile. Forced exile of a people, in whole or in part, is one aspect of genocide, incidentally, Ask people of African indigenous descent. The imperial powers of Europe, and eventually the USA, have long used Israel as a quite willing tool. Israel has employed its upper hand and abused its power since even before 1948, and is now committing genocide in Gaza and the West Bank. But those who impose an indigenous versus colonial reading on the two parties in conflict are wrong. Palestinians are not related to the land the way Native Americans are to theirs, nor are Jews less related to the land than Palestinians. There should never have been a violent ethnic cleansing prior to and after 1948 by Zionists in the first place, but it was done just as the Roman expulsion of Israelites from Judea after the defeat of the Bar Kokhba rebellion was done. Regardless of the many ways in which Israel's possession of the land resembles settler colonialism, Jews themselves, as a diaspora people, are as indigenous to the land as Palestinians. Describing either group as indigenous is an abuse of the concept of indigeneity. I leave it to yourselves to explore, with an open mind, and good faith research what indigeneity actually means. I can only say that there are Jews of color with First Nations blood running through their veins who aren't particularly happy with the way the term is being thrown around. Sadly, large numbers of those protesting on the pro-Palestinian side argue that there is a black and white settler colonial slash indigenous divide between the two peoples. I feel that is a 
purposeful and self-serving error. It makes it easier for the left to understand a difficult geopolitical problem. But it's simply wrong. I'm sorry if that makes some who demonstrate in favor of a free Palestine sound ignorant, but perhaps they are. Complicating the ongoing conflict are past war actions taken by the surrounding Arab nations as well as terror killings of civilians from the Palestinian side. In the end, all they accomplished has been to give Israel more opportunity and excuses to exercise oppressive policing power and annex more land. Not to admit these facts of history is to be ignorant or dishonest. Muslim and Arab powers in the region, along with various other imperial or would-be imperial governments at different times, have done their share of exploiting the conflict. They've done so by using and abusing the rightful Palestinian ambition for redress, statehood, and freedom. In framing a solution, assuming things ever progress to that point, instead of continuing to regress to a point even worse than now, there ought to be a sharing of the land and rights conferred by citizenship to all inhabitants. That must be the goal. I don't pretend to know how a state with a Jewish character can accommodate citizenship for all, but neither do I understand the idea of a governing democracy with a Jewish character that condones asymmetry of power, wealth, and rights based on ethnicity that has been the reigning condition, at least as long as I've been alive. Not that we're anywhere near achieving justice anywhere in the world, but the approach to justice will be off course if plotted by essentialist identitarian fallacies. Protesters have been loose with the indigenous label. Jews and Palestinians are equally indigenous to the land, which might include them being 0% indigenous, depending on the operating definition of indigenousness. Israel has been exploiting Jewish claims to the land, however legitimate, via its symbiotic collaborationist interests with the imperial West. Symbiosis between Israel and U.S. and other Western ambitions to increase control of the land through asymmetrical power over Palestinians has been the rule and the root of the current poison tree. I have a very difficult time believing the vast numbers marching in support of a free Palestine as opposed to simply ceasefire have anything remotely as complex as the above understanding in mind. Granted, complexity is often overrated and can mire actions in digressive matters, but as a Jew, a human, and an observer of history as it's being made, I am reticent to leave some matters, however digressive, unacknowledged, and unspoken. Israel has represented, since its inception, a project of ethnic cleansing. Israel is also a project of recovering a state Jews were historically exiled from. There can't be a just peace without acknowledging a Jewish claim in the land where there are ruins of the Second Temple, synagogues from the Middle Ages, and graves of our ancestors. A land without a people for a people without a land is a propagandistic myth with which Jews are indoctrinated from childhood into supporting Zionism and ignoring glaring, horrific realities about the Project of Israel. I remember being told Zionists showed up and all there was was Bedouins. No permanent dwellings, no civilization to speak of. That myth remains firm in the minds 
of most supporters of Israel, except the truly racist, hawkish, might-makes-right ones who are happy to use the ignorance and team spirit of their fellow Jews to maintain support for a violent occupation. I reject that propaganda on the basis of historical documentation, but many arguments against Jewish claims to the land don't hold water either. That Zionists discussed other places for a Jewish state is immaterial. That they represent Western parasitic neocolonial interests doesn't make their claim illegitimate either. The asymmetry of power doesn't make their claim illegitimate. The genocidal bombing of Gaza doesn't make it illegitimate. The claim is the claim. The actions and power for which the claim is wielded as justification are abominable, inevitably self-defeating, supportive of a Western supremacist project. But the claim is the claim, and I feel strongly that anyone examining the facts behind the claim with fairness and honesty cannot come to another conclusion. The label of indigeneity applied to Palestinians is both a misuse of the term and further a rhetorical tactic meant to undermine the claim. Justice won't hinge on dishonesty. It can't be built on lies. That's true everywhere, not just in the conflict presently under discussion. Everything isn't cowboys and Indians, folks. You might not want to admit it. It might be uncomfortable, it might be difficult, but that doesn't make Saturday matinee perceptions of complex geopolitical problems true. Don't stop protesting. Don't stop trying to free Palestine. Just do so with greater awareness. Personally, I wouldn't mind it if the Jews sacked Rome in revenge, but that's eh, another story. This has been the Moment of Truth. Good day. And I think we're going to be touching on that other story with Rick Perlstein tomorrow because he talks about the relationship between uh, fascist Italy and the Zionists, which is <laughs> absolutely fascinating. Uh, so people should check out his article over the prospect. We'll be telling you a little bit more. It's a great about article. Yeah, it's really great. And all of his work over there is fantastic. He's trying, I guess, the whole point of his new. Uh, gig at uh, Prospect is to have a conversation. He writes an article and then he wants to have a very uh, intense conversation with le readers if they agree with him or disagree with him. And he's asking people to correct him if he at any point is wrong because he's not a, you know, history expert when it comes to Israel. So what's new by you, sir? What's new by me? Well, I'm here in Detroit. Oh, I just had uh, I had drinks with uh, our friend Clarence Song last night. Where were you? I was here in Detroit at the, uh, what do you call it? Oh, I don't know, a Dog and Pony Brewery in Oak Park. Okay. And uh, that was pretty fun. Um, I'm here to take care of my sister after her back surgery, but her back surgery hasn't taken place yet. And due to certain medical complications, she it, it's been postponed. It was supposed to happen Friday. It's been postponed till Tuesday. Uh, so I'm not sure exactly my uh, my stay here might be extended or who knows who knows what will happen but it, that's why I'm here also taking care of my parents what else uh, well what else have you done in the Detroit area since you got there well it's only been a few days but I've been to a Chinese market out on John R that is as good as any Chinese market in LA Wow yeah like John R and what John R and I, I don't know the area well enough to tell you, okay. but it's up, you know, it's up there. Uh, uh, it's out there. It's called 168 Asian Market or something. Okay. 
up in John, I don't know, it's north of my parents' place in Farmington Hills. Do you have any other plans while you're in Detroit? Yeah, I got a lot of food to eat, man. I got a lot of delis to go to. I ate at the Bread Basket Deli yesterday with Clarence, and because uh, we were going to eat at Mookie's. This is all in Lincoln Center, by the way, where I used to work at Checker Barbecue as a pizza man. I didn't pizza know you worked there. Boy. Oh yeah, That's oh crazy. yeah, man. I was. I knew everybody. <laughs> <laughs> um, we went to a record store today too, which was cool. But I gotta go to I gotta go to a lot of Asian places. I gotta go to a lot of delis. I got a lot of food to eat here, man. Luckily, I got time. But I don't think I'm gonna get it all done. Go over to Eastern Market. I will. I'll go over to Eastern Market. I'll eat my way through Eastern Market. I love that place. All right, Jeffy. Yes, sir. Until next time. What? Stay beautiful. Mm, all right. Land uh, live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, the Ojibwe, Ottawa, the Miami, the Ho Chunk, the Menominee, and Sac and Fox peoples. This is Hell. Becca, please remind us what is this week's question from Hell, and tell us how our listeners are responding on our Facebook page. All right. This week's question from Hell came from our listener Rick P. Says. Uh, why do birds suddenly appear every time you are near? Listener Rick P. will magically become guest Rick Perlstein oh, tomorrow. Oh, I see. I see. It's all coming together. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> all right. So our very own Jeffrey Dorchin says, you mean he magically appears as Rick Perlstein this Thursday? Ah, look at it. It's all coming together. <laughs> and Benjamin C. says, carry on, my wayward son. Wow. <laughs> Another applause. Oh my okay. God. <laughs> Who was that? That is Benjamin C. Benjamin. You can come back anytime. Out of the park right there. <laughs> yeah. Good job. Uh, John T. says, dude, it's a Hitchcock fest. <laughs> okay. And Warren L. says, uh, Quetzalcoatl and the cleaning crew would be a good name for a rock band. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that is a Aztec word. I'm not. I'm not actually exactly sure. Uh, Daniel L says, "Well, someone's got to feed the pigeons around here." Uh, and then Garrett S says, "Because this is my great grandfather, and it's a Robert Stroud Wikipedia link." And then Fabio AJ says, "Those aren't birds. They are government surveillance units." <laughs> of course they are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Quetzalcoatl, I think, is Aztec, and now yeah. I can't remember. I. Uh, know it from Carlos Castaneda, but yeah. uh, I also know that I had a conversation with him once. Mm, beautiful. Yeah, it's very intense when you're talking to a god and you're tripping I, your brains I out. I can't even imagine, actually. <laughs> yes. That's very cool. Apparently I could. <laughs> Any more? Uh, that's all we got. Okay, so we'll have uh, the Patreon responses tomorrow when uh, producer Chris Coolfan is in here, as well as our responses on from Discord, from uh, Twitter. Uh, but it's time right now for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, this week in rotten history. On February 28th, 1986, 38 years ago this week, Swedish Prime Minister Olaf Palme and his wife, Lisbeth, were leaving a movie house and sent a movie house. Hmm, I haven't heard that term in a while. In central Stockholm, when they were... What else would you call it? Theater? Movie theater? Nah. Uh, in central Stockholm, when they were approached from behind by a gunman who shot them both. Lisbeth was only grazed by a bullet, but the prime minister was soon pronounced dead. Olaf Palme, a left-leaning social democrat, disliked being surrounded by bodyguards and was known for sometimes going about his business without them. Such was the case on the night of his assassination. Although more than two dozen people witnessed the crime, no one but Palma's wife 
was in a position to get a good look at the killer, who immediately fled on foot. Almost three years passed before a man named Christer Peterson was arrested by police and picked up out picked out of a police lineup by Lisbeth Palma, leading to his conviction. Peterson was known to be a drug addict and petty criminal and had previously done time, jail time for manslaughter. But an appeals court later ruled that in mishandling the lineup, the police may have inadvertently cued Lisbeth Palma to pick out the wrong man, Peterson. Citing a lack of sufficient evidence, the court reversed Pedersen's conviction, even though he had actually confessed to the murder, saying that he had mistaken Palma for a drug dealer he knew. And while, if you search on Google Images, Olaf Palma does not look like any drug dealer I have ever met. He does look like what I imagine the drug dealer's drug dealer's dealer might look like in a movie about a European drug cartel. Patterson went free, and the years following his acquittal saw the advancement of various alternative theories, citing Palma's anti-colonialist political views and pinning his assassination on right-wing operatives from various countries and even from inside the Swedish police. In 2020, prosecutors issued a statement blaming the murder on a man named Stig Engström, who was reported to have been near the crime scene and who had been dead for 20 years, having died in 2000. But Swedish news media criticized the statement, calling it short on evidence and unconvincing, and conspiracy theories about the assassination of Olaf Palma still circulate to this day. So, Olaf Palma died very much like I'm guessing I will, and that is being mistaken as a drug dealer or accurately identified as an anti-colonialist. Also in Rotten History on March 2nd, 1877, 147 years ago this week, only two days before the inauguration of the new president, which before the passage of the 20th Amendment took place on March 4th and not January 20th, a decision was finally reached as to who would actually be inaugurated. It was clear that in November, the Democratic candidate, New York Governor Samuel Tilden, whose family had built a fortune on the manufacture and sale of a cannabis-based patent medicine, had received more popular votes than the Republican. Ohio Governor Rutherford Hayes. But there was uncertainty as to which man had won in the all-important, although completely undemocratic, electoral college. Controversy focused on the states of Florida, Louisiana, Oregon, and South Carolina, where the results were in question due to numerous reports of voter intimidation and electoral fraud, something you would never expect in former slave states like Florida, Louisiana, or South Carolina, who were very upset about Reconstruction. But now, amid the resulting political chaos, racist white Southern politicians in the Democratic Party saw an opportunity. Since the end of the Civil War, just 22 years earlier, they had bitterly resented the constitutional amendments of post-war Reconstruction, see, which were meant to promote civil rights in the former Confederacy and help reintegrate newly freed black people into Southern society, allowing them, among other things, to vote and be elected to political office. It was expected that if elected Hayes from the party of Lincoln would uphold those reconstructionist policies. But after weeks of heated discussion by high-ranking party officials in smoke-filled rooms, the Southerners maneuvered the Republicans into an 11th hour agreement by which Tilden would give up his claim to the presidency and Hayes would take office, but only on the condition that he withdraw federal troops from the South, thus ending enforcement of reconstructionist measures. Because 
They had to defeat democracy before destroying Reconstruction. Thus, Hayes was duly sworn in on March 4th, effectively ending Reconstruction and ushering in the era of Jim Crow. Rude Hayes, as he was known to his friends, also soon became the first U.S. president to have a telephone in the White House. When it came to tech, he was an early ado adopter. But the phone did not appear on his office desk. He had the newfangled gadget installed in the White House telegraph room, where it mostly went unused, since there were still so few other telephone users to call. But to be honest, who'd want to talk to a president who was undemocratically installed into office so he could usher in Jim Crow? I mean, this might just be me, but Rude Hayes sounds like a dick. Becca, who do we have scheduled as our final guest here on This Is Hell this week? We have award-winning historian Rick Perlstein. Also, he returns for This Is Hell to discuss his latest American Prospect article that has led to a lot of hate mail titled The Neglected History of the State of Israel, the Revisionist Faction of Zionism that Ended Up Triumphing, Adhered to Literal Fascist Doctrines and Traditions. I hope we get hate mail. I love I, hate mail. Hate, I haven't seen any hate mail for this place. I would like that, too. I know. We never get hate mail. Really? Yes. It's, it's annoying. Leftists. And, I know. Damn it. They love too much. They do. <laughs> Join us for This Is Hell Office Hours, our meet and greet. That's really a drink and think, no matter the weather. Office Hours are held every Wednesday evening, beginning at 6 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. If you joined us for Office Hours last week, we... I brought some food I saw at the store while I was really high, and I thought, this is perfect for office hours. So I brought chocolate cream Oreos, but in the chocolate cream are Pop Rocks, Space Rocks. So they were going off in people's mouths. No. So the worst thing about it was you bite into it, <laughs> and you don't taste the Pop Rocks. Then you swallow it, and then it starts <laughs> percolating in your throat. It was so gross and so disturbing and watching everybody sitting there and going, oh my God, this is terrible. Can I have another one? Was very entertaining. <laughs> That's awesome. So uh, the show you're listening to right now streams live on Wednesday, which means the this evening is office hours and the current weather forecast is, by the way, don't get any Oreos. They're disgusting. After two consecutive days of record setting highs, the temperature has dropped nearly 50 degrees, but you will still likely find me out back in the beer garden around the fire pit. That's This Is Hell Office Hours, which happen every Wednesday evening, beginning at around 6 p.m. inside the warm and friendly confines of Carrie's Lounge or outside in the beer garden. Again, located at 2251-2251 West Avon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. Thanks to Becca Ridenauer for producing I Am Your Bitter Blind Broke, Gap-toothed radio show, podcast, and live streaming host Chuck Mertz. This is hell, where we make learning about evil fun. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.